Welcome to our podcast, SGLT2 Inhibitors Morning Commute, CKD Benefit in Diabetic and Non-Diabetic Patients. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company. In this episode, Dr. Vivian Fonseca and Dr. George Bakris will discuss clinical trial data that look at new directions for the use of SGLT2 inhibitors, particularly how they benefit patients with chronic kidney disease. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Fonseca is Assistant Dean for Clinical Research and Professor of Medicine, as well as the Tullus Tulane Alumni Chair in Diabetes at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, where he is also Chief of the Section of Endocrinology. Dr. Bakris is Professor of Medicine and Director of the American Heart Association's Comprehensive Hypertension Center at the University of Chicago Medicine. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Fonseca will begin our discussion. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast. My name is Vivian Fonseca from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. George Bakris from the University of Chicago. We're talking about new directions in SGLT2 inhibitor therapies, particularly focusing uh, on kidney disease. And we have had one pause podcast, which I hope you've heard, uh, where we discussed uh, some of the background of how to diagnose diabetic kidney disease and what possible mechanisms some of the newer drugs might have in benefiting uh, chronic kidney disease. I now want to turn to some more specific data, Uh, the clinical trial data, uh, the different drugs that are available. Uh, We're very fortunate to have so many drugs that were developed for diabetes, including for uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, there are some more uh, on the way. Uh, they all have a few subtle differences, but in general, most of them, uh, as you heard in the first podcast, seem to have similar mechanisms of action on the kidney. And they all started off doing cardiovascular outcome trials. The first of those to report was the Emporeg outcome, which showed some very interesting uh, benefits uh, on cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality. For the first time, you had a diabetes drug that was helping uh, the heart, and this study was designed for the heart, but it showed some benefits in the kidney. And empagliflozin led to a 39% decrease in the risk of of new onset kidney disease or worsening of of kidney disease in people with diabetes who happened to be enrolled because they had cardiovascular disease. So George, could you elaborate on that? Let's talk about the cardiovascular trials briefly and then focus on a couple of important trials that have been done specifically for people with chronic kidney disease, both with and without diabetes. So um, I'm happy to do that, Vivian. Let's let's go back and have the audience understand why these trials were done in the first place. And we, for that, we have to go back to the PPAR gammas and the cardiovascular risk that was perceived going back now into the early 2000s in the trials there, and the FDA came up with a ruling that future drugs that are gonna lower glucose have to have trials that look at cardiovascular safety as part of the 
cocktail to be approved uh, by these drugs. It's not just glycemic control. And that led to these trials being developed for safety reasons, cardiovascular safety. But innovative companies like Barrier Ingelheim and AstraZeneca and Janssen basically put together cocktails or protocols that basically looked not only at cardiovascular safety, but also looked at cardiovascular outcomes and also looked at renal outcomes. Now, they recruited patients that had reasonable kidney function. I mean, these people had GFRs in the 70s and 80s coming in, but they clearly had diabetes. They clearly had high cardiovascular risk, some higher than others in these trials. But uniformly, all of these trials showed significant reductions in heart failure, heart failure hospitalizations, heart failure deaths, and cardiovascular risks in general. That's number one. In addition, they showed benefit on slowing of progression of kidney disease. Now, that was that really set the stage for trying to understand how these drugs are working. It also set the stage to actually do proper kidney trials in people with far more advanced kidney disease to see if this was just a cardiovascular benefit spilling over to the kidney or was there really specific kidney benefits that were being seen. And uniformly, as has been shown in a recent meta-analysis by Darren McGuire, clearly all show uniform cardiovascular benefit, some more than others, and all show kidney benefit, again, some more than others. So, so let, let's, let's start with what was found in the Bagliflozin trial, Emporeg, as far as kidney disease is concerned. Sure. So basically in this trial, number one, there was a clear benefit in slowing progression of kidney disease in time to end-stage kidney disease, time to dialysis, and also there was a uh, observation of an initial drop in glomerular filtration rate that was seen, not a huge drop, but a drop of about three mLs per minute within the first month or so of therapy, after which it reset and the falling rate was far, far less than the control placebo group. And so at the end of the day, the rate of decline in kidney function was substantially less than it was in the other group, as much as 30 to 40% less than the standard of care group. That could not be explained by differences in blood pressure. It could not be explained by differences in glycemic control. It couldn't be explained by really most of the traditional factors that one would explain this. And so it begged the question, why is this happening? And so Amparag was really the one that got the ball rolling. It was one of the highest cardiovascular risk groups of the trials that have been out there. And so one argued, well, you have such high cardiovascular risk, of course you saw a benefit. And other trials actually tried to deal with that in a very nice way by recruiting less risky patients, still risky, but less risky, and still showed the same benefit. Yes, and that was seen in the declaratimi trial, which had a mix of uh, high risk and so in a way, primary prevention and secondary prevention. There were differences in outcomes. And I think they, it's because of the nature of the population. It's not because of a difference in drugs. As you point out, you take very high-risk people and you do create a benefit. The benefit looks fantastically good compared to less risky people where the events don't occur at the same rate uh, in the placebo group. 
with the pagliflozin, there was another trial called DAPA-CKD, which focused on people with chronic kidney disease, including some without diabetic chronic kidney disease. And, and so I, I would like your perspective on that uh, and what it means. This trial was a, a game changer. There's no other way to say it. We, we knew that from the trials of cardiovascular outcome that all of these were beneficial in the kidney. And we assumed that diabetes had to be part of the package for there to be benefit. And DAPA-CKD, which was adequately powered, about 33% of the patients, about a third, did not have diabetes. In fact, specifically, they had IgA nephropathy, hypertensive nephrosclerosis, focal sclerosis. They did not have diabetes. And that group got the same benefit as the people with diabetes. And I have to tell you, nobody has a good answer for that either. It's being looked at as we speak, but it changed the landscape and the whole concept of thinking about these drugs as non-diabetic drugs, that they're drugs with cardiorenal risk reduction, and we really don't fully understand why. Now, it's interesting in the DAPA-CKD that the group without diabetes, the group that got the greatest benefit were people with IgA nephropathy, which is not rare. Um, why did that group get a benefit? No one has a clue. And it's been discussed, I can tell you, no one has a clue. And it's being looked at as to what the possibilities could be. But um, the, the beauty of this class of drugs is when you study them, you, you go to answer one question and you end up with 10 when you're finished. So it's um, an interesting uh, observation. Well, let me ask you in relation to that population, you're not causing glycosuria or very little because the blood sugar is not that high. Do people lose the same amount of weight? Do they drop their blood pressure the same amount? What's going on there? So good. That's a very good question. Do they drop their blood pressure as much? Yes, they do. Because as I said earlier, this is not a sodium mechanism. This is a different mechanism and it probably relates to sympathetic tone that these drugs are affecting. And how they're affecting it is unclear, but as I said, they mimic renal denervation. And you're absolutely right about glucose. They don't lose as much weight. Uh, in fact, if I remember right, and I'm not positive about this, but it's less than a kilo that they lost uh, compared to the people with diabetes, which lost about two kilos, two to three kilos. So uh, the same thing was seen with canagliflozin in the Credence trial. Uh, which was actually the groundbreaking trial in terms of renal disease. Could, uh, could you expand on that a bit? Absolutely. So timing-wise, uh, Credence started uh, before DAPA-CKD, and Credence was, came out before DAPA-CKD. I was privileged to be on the development and steering committee of that trial, and we wanted a trial that would look mm -hmm. at, there would be no question in anybody's mind that these people had kidney disease. So we looked at GFRs generally below 60 and people that had greater than 300 milligrams of albuminuria. This was a big deal. And actually when the trial was done, the GFR in the trial was uh, in the, uh, if I remember right, uh, high 40s. And there were approximately 920 milligrams of albumin as a mean uh, in the study. So there were people with grams of proteinuria and there were people with you know, less than a gram. The point is that when the study was done, 
the primary endpoint was a very strict renal endpoint. It was time to dialysis, doubling of serum creatinine, and stage kidney disease, or renal death, or cardiovascular death. And that was wildly positive with a 30% risk reduction. And if you only looked at the kidney endpoints, there was a 32% risk reduction uh, in preserving the kidneys. So it validated the data from the healthier kidneys in the cardiovascular trial and really nailed shut that this drug is cardiorenal protective and absolutely needs to be given to patients at high risk, regardless of whether they are um, have good kidney function or not. And then when DAPA-CKD came out, which was within a year of credence being finished, it extended it to say, look, this is cardiorenal risk reducing irrespective of glycemic control. So we may, we don't understand what's going on, but let me tell you, it's good for both the kidney and the heart. I, I agree with you, uh, George, but let me uh, put things in a little different perspective here. Sure. Uh, although these people were high risk for kidney disease, they had proteinuria. In many of the trials, you had to have 300 milligrams a day or higher. Yep. Now, when I start looking in my clinic for those people to, there are there are a few, but they're not that many. Right. And uh, they, many of my patients would not have been included in that in these trials. Yet we've now making recommendations to give it to everybody. <laughs> Is that? appropriate or will we or is it cost effective is it cost effective to give it to people with gfrs of 70. right so i would say this if you're looking at the combination of cardiovascular risk reduction and kidney uh, disease progression i would argue yes why because we showed in credence and it was shown in dapa ckd you got a benefit irrespective of whether you had microalbuminuria or macroalbuminuria or very high albuminuria. So that's number one. Number two, it may take you longer to see the cardio, the renal benefit in terms of dialysis or whatever, if your GFR is 70, 75, but you absolutely have evidence in four trials of cardiovascular benefit. So, and you're gonna get better glycemic control if your GFR is 70. So I, think that it really should be, as they used to say with the ACE inhibitors, put it in the drinking water. I think I would argue this has got stronger evidence to be put in the drinking water than the ACE inhibitors do. Yeah, uh, but you know, let's, let's again, questions come up about that kind of concept. Look at the Virtus trial, yeah. less than spectacular benefits. And uh, let me be a little cynical here. It's because they had a placebo group that did very well. So all you need to do to succeed in a trial is to have a placebo group that does badly. Uh, and you, you, you look wonderful. So could you comment on that? Is it uh, something wrong with that drug? Uh, um, there's nothing wrong with the drug. Uh, I and others consider the benefit as a class effect. Um, I hope I'm not speaking out of school. But I actually I, agree with you. I agree oh, okay, with you, but okay. I, I just, people ask me these questions. I understand. I understand. I, I think, and, and you raised a beautiful point, and uh, somebody that doesn't do clinical trials would not appreciate this because they're assuming placebo is placebo, which it isn't. So I think that if the placebo group has an excellent standard of care, um, you're going to have an issue. By the way, to come back to the Fidelio trial, it with the finerenone and the non-seroidal mineralocorticoid, 
our renal benefit was there. It was significant, but it wasn't as dramatic as the SGLT2s. One of the reasons we hypothesized for that is we mandated everybody in that trial be on maximal dose, ACE or ARB, or you didn't get in the trial. These trials didn't do that. But what has not been done, although I requested it in the urticoflozin studies to go back and see, were people on maximal doses, ACEs and ARBs? Because if they were, that would be one reason why you may not have gotten the benefit that you saw in the other trials, which did not look at whether you were in maximal dose of ACE or ARBs. So I think the audience needs to understand that this is on top of standard of care. And it's not instead of standard of care. And maybe that's why the placebo group looked better. So shouldn't that, shouldn't we have equipoise of having placebo groups well-controlled in clinical trials before we start drawing conclusions in that way? There, there's also differences. Let me raise another issue that people ask questions about. Applicability of many of these trials are done globally for good reason. I mean, you, you don't have enough people in the United States to run these trials, sure. the large numbers. There are differences in the populations. You know, some are done in Asia, some are done in Europe, and there's a big difference in response. Uh, and, in, and in this country, the people who are affected the most are some of the ethnic minorities. Uh, Hispanics and African-Americans get very, particularly African-Americans get very severe uh, chronic kidney disease at a younger age. Uh, and um, you've worked on this, I know, with the ASK and other trials like that. Could you put that information into the context of this class of drugs uh, for a US-based population? Yeah, so that's a very important question. First of all, let me agree with you that um, placebo groups should be given the best care and not you know, do what you want. So I think that's an important point. Number two, um, African-Americans, Hispanics, um, definitely have more issues certainly with kidney disease, uh, but even cardiovascular disease, than the rest of the population. There's been a lot of speculation on that. We specifically looked at African-Americans in credence from a kidney standpoint and saw no difference in their benefit versus the other group. Unfortunately, that only made up about five to 7% of the total group studied. The other problem is African-Americans tend not to want to come into trials because of a lot of suspicion. I understand that. There's no question about it. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot that can be said because we, we don't study them. And it's also been argued that those that come into trials is our bias because they're actually gonna do everything that's being requested of them. And that's not what's going on in the real world. So there's a lot of issues with that. Same with the Hispanics. I think the important point is that there is, and, and people hate this term, there is the clinical trial, there are the clinical trial data and there's real world data. And if you look at the clinical trial data, that is the best possible situation you can possibly get. Can you extrapolate it to the general population? I think you can with a caveat that it's not gonna be as good. People are not gonna be as adherent. They're not gonna follow the rules as well. And so you'll get a benefit, but it's gonna be a little less than what you saw in the trials for those reasons. And what I tell patients, especially those that read the literature and tell me about these studies, so they're familiar with them. I tell them, look, if you want this benefit, this is what you gotta do. And you cannot sway from it. If you do, 
you will not get the benefits seen in the trial. And a lot of patients don't realize that. They think there's something magical about the drug. So I think that's another point of clarity that needs to be put out there. You know, one of the issues in the trials is that people are getting the medications under very close contact with the, with the team. And in the real world, you have a small problem. You can't get hold of the team and, and, uh, and people stop taking their medication. Uh, adherence is a problem. And, and one way around that is the so-called comparative effectiveness trial. Are there any going on like that to compare between these drugs, between classes? And we're going to discuss this in more detail uh, in the next podcast, but I'd like your brief take on this. And finally, perhaps end with what trials are currently going on with SGLT2 inhibitors like Emperor Kidney. Yeah. So I am unaware of any comparative effectiveness trials that are going on. So I don't know that we're going to have any answer on that anytime soon. Um, there are trials, the Empa kidney trial is going on. Um, there is, uh, there are trials that are being considered for heart failure. Um, but I have to tell you, um, I think the bulk of the data, I'm not sure Empa kidney is going to give us a lot of new information. I think it's going to be largely confirmatory because as far as I think most people are concerned, we've got super solid data on the kidney. We've got very solid data on cardiovascular outcomes. And the new data we need are not more trials. The new data we need are mechanisms to help explain why we're getting a breadth of coverage from GFRs of 15 to GFRs of 85. Across the board, there's cardiorenal benefit cannot be explained by naturesis, can't be explained by GFR changes, can't be explained by glucose. What is going on? We don't know. So just to, to uh, clarify uh, for our audience, although there was a range of GFR of, in, in these trials, the mean GFR and credence was somewhere in the high 50s. Is that correct? That is correct. But let me tell you, we just published a paper looking at all the people with GFRs of less than 30. And that GFR of less than 30 was seen in 174 patients at baseline. And the majority of them were 15 to 29. But we did have three people or two people that were below 15. And they got the same benefit that the people in the trial overall got. So did you prevent dialysis in those patients? Same level. That's the ultimate aim of our patients and right. our physicians. They, we want to prevent dialysis. Right. The, the composite endpoints are somewhat confusing to some. Right. And so the, the short answer is we looked at that and the answer was yes, we did to the same extent as we did the major trial. So that, that's really very important. And I wish we could do more trials in more serious patients focusing on dial decreasing dialysis and transplantation, which is what people want to avoid. That's the most expensive, challenging uh, thing. But before we get there, we're going to need to talk about the vast majority of patients and how we actually treat them in everyday clinical practice. And for that, I'd like to invite everybody to our next podcast, which will focus on that very point of incorporating and optimizing the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in chronic kidney disease management in the setting of diabetes, as well as possibly in those without diabetes. Thank you all for listening. George, thank you so much for your uh, excellent comments. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you for joining us. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors2 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other endocrinology podcasts, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com 
forward slash endocrinology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits.